Just a quick note, on this episode of Sound School, I feature some challenging subject matter. There's a brief mention of suicide and a recording of a murder. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Sound School podcast with the backstory to great audio storytelling. I'm Rob, and this podcast is produced by PRX and Transom. There are a couple of questions that animate this podcast. And I don't mean just this episode. I mean Sound School writ large. I'll be listening to a story, and I'll think, why'd you make that choice? I might hear something in the writing and structure or the mix, or maybe there's an ethical choice that causes me to raise an eyebrow a little bit, and I'll wonder, huh, how come you did that? Or, that's really good. How did you do that? And then I'll put together a show. So on this episode of Sound School, a few questions I have about choices made in podcasts I've listened to recently, including Bjork, Sonic Symbolism, and also The Outlaw Ocean. But let me start with All There Is with Anderson Cooper. It's produced by CNN Audio. I won't lie, I fully expected not to like this podcast. There's a hyper-glossy pic of Anderson in the show's cover art. That is a real turnoff for me. I am not attracted to celebrity. And this is going to sound heartless, but I'm going there. I rolled my eyes when I read what the podcast was about. All there is is another story from Anderson about his now-deceased mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, the socialite and fashion designer. Now, I rolled my eyes not because his mother died. Let me be clear about that. I have nothing but empathy for Anderson or anyone when they lose their mother. No, it's that Anderson has been interviewed a gazillion times about his mother and family. And he's already reported several stories about his mother. There's Nothing Left Unsaid, which was an HBO documentary from 2016. There's the book that came out a year later, The Rainbow Comes and Goes, A Mother and Son on Life, Love, and Loss. Both of those were produced while she was alive. After his mother died in 2020, he earned an Emmy for a piece on CNN called Anderson Cooper Pays Tribute to His Mom, Gloria Vanderbilt. And so now, a podcast about her? Yeah, I was dubious. However, I'd read a few positive reviews of All There Is, so I downloaded the first episode and pressed play. The door to my mom's apartment is heavy. You have to kind of twist the top lock just the right way and the bottom lock and then kind of push with your shoulder. The apartment's sold a few months ago and so I have a couple of weeks to pack up all my mom's things and um, and move out. I came up with this idea a couple of weeks ago while I've been going through my mom's things to make this podcast about going through all the stuff that's left behind and I haven't done a podcast before so I have to bear with me a little bit. Um, I just learned how to use the <laughs> this recorder. What immediately struck me is how honest Anderson sounds. Maybe it was rehearsed. Maybe it's scripted in some way. Maybe this was the fifth take of Anderson opening the door to his mom's apartment and they used this version because he finally nailed it. I don't know. But I'm not hearing that. His in-the-moment commentary feels genuine. So does his narration. When my mom died in June 2019, she was living on about as quiet a street in Manhattan as you can find. Beekman Place is by the East River on 51st Street. It's a cul-de-sac of townhouses and pre-war apartment buildings, the kind with friendly doormen and fussy co-op boards. She lived in a two-bedroom apartment on the second floor of a 10-story building and had a separate apartment below that she used as a studio to paint. 
My dad bought the place a few years before he died in 1978. I remember coming into this apartment when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, my dad used it as an office. He used it as a place to write. Um, it's really a two-bedroom apartment. You enter into a small foyer and into a large room. My mom had painted white with bleached white wooden floors. I should probably do this while I'm walking. Next to it's a small sitting room, which is the room that my dad used to write in. There was a small radio that would usually play opera or classical music off in the corner of the room. His desk was right where I'm standing right now. And I remember as a kid sitting at that desk looking through his drawers and just spending time with him as he was here writing. My brother Carter also lived here for a year after he graduated college. A couple of days after he died, I came to the apartment by myself to pick out a suit for him to be buried in. Which I guess is, is kind of a long way of saying that this place has a lot of memories for me. Um, and it's a lot of memories of people who are, are no longer here. Just coming here, frankly, is... Just coming here is hard. But my mom, she never asked, well, why me? What did this happen to me? She would always say, why not me? Why should me be exempt from the pain of living and losing? And yeah, this is part of it. This is what, what happens. The gist of the podcast is this. Anderson's father died when he was 10 years old. His brother Carter died by suicide in his mother's apartment a decade later, and now his mother has passed. There's a lot of grief in the mother's home, in Anderson too. It's impossible to avoid it as he sorts through his mother's possessions. In the podcast, Anderson cries several times, even while he's narrating. From what I can tell, they aren't fake tears. I'm sitting now in her apartment, full of journals and notes, Letters and postcards are thousands of books, every one of which she'd read and often scribbled her thoughts in. It's not just stuff, it's, it's memories, her memories and mine. It's evidence of my brother's life and my dad's, of their existence, that they were here, that they mattered. It's all the people they knew whom I knew. They're alive in these things. And holding them and going through them I feel their presence again, and I love that. But what do I do with all these things? I, I need to learn something from all this. I mean, this can't be it. This can't be all there is. Somewhere in these notes and, and these boxes that I got to go through, I hope to find something that helps me to, to make sense of all this, that eases the pain of their absence. And I want to talk to other people who've experienced loss as well to hear what, what they've learned, how they survived. I hope this podcast will help you as well. Even if you aren't going through something like this right now, you will. We all will. So yes, I was smitten by the first episode of All There Is and the curious history Anderson discovers in his mother's belongings, which I won't reveal here. But I rolled my eyes again when I saw Stephen Colbert's name in episode two. Cynical Rob thought, okay, here we go, celebrities on parade sharing their stories of grief. I know, I know, I'm cruel, 
and I'm wrong again. Yes, Stephen is a celebrity, and he has his share of family tragedy. His father and two brothers died in a plane crash when Stephen was young. But the conversation between Stephen and Anderson was positively amazing. It is incredibly rare to hear two grown men speaking openly and honestly about their feelings. My awareness of the world changed. My emotional life changed. My relationship with my mother changed. I mean, certainly my relationship with my father and my brothers changed too, because now I never really get to know my father, you know, always Olympian, always this sort of mm-hmm. saintly figure in a way. And my brothers are always, you know, about to go play baseball. They're about to go play baseball all the time. They're just looking for their gloves all the time. It's such a strange feeling. I, my brother was 23 when he died. He's always that person I knew at 23. Mm-hmm. And it's been 34 years since then. So that image of your brother's always playing baseball, for me, sadly, the image is often the end of his life, which was a very violent and awful mm-hmm. um, suicide. So uh, I get stuck in that image. How old was your father? 53. Hmm. How old are you now? I'm 58, man. Hmm. That's weird. Isn't uh, That was what I was, yeah. That's weird. I remember. <laughs> My dad died at 50, and I'm 55 now. Me hitting 50 was a big sure. thing. I did all, especially like, I mean, you had children after you were older than your father ever was. Because but... I waited. Cause I, oh, really? I've always assumed I would die at 50. So when I hit 51, literally, I said to my doctor, you know, I've been thinking I would die all this past year. And he looked at me like I was an idiot. And he was like, you, you, got, you got a good amount of time. So that's when I decided, okay, I'm actually going to have kids because he's assured me I can live to see them through college. Well, since my father and my brothers died when I was 10, when my kids were younger, it, it would hit me at unexpected moments, in moments of great happiness. Like, even just my daughter, like, jumping off the swing at the right point and landing and being happy about it and running over and saying, did you see daddy? And, you know, giving me a hug. That moment of absolutely inexpressible, transporting joy. And she's six, let's say, in this memory. I go, I'd be like, oh, isn't this great? Four more years. Wow. That I would think, how lucky that I get to experience this for four more years before I die. My age wasn't important. It was how old they would be when I die. Mm. That clip comes fairly early in the episode with Stephen Colbert. The conversation grows deeper and more complex from there. Personally, I found their chat incredibly valuable. It prompted me to think about my own grief and talk about it with friends and family. So yes, I highly recommend All There Is with Anderson Cooper. But what's my production question? Well, I wonder a bit about the music. Even though I often think music is overused in podcasts, I question why the producers didn't use more. The episodes are emotionally dense, and a little breather with some music to help change the subject and provide a reset for the audience might have been helpful. I also question where the music came from. It sounds like music from a TV production library at CNN. Appropriate to the feeling in the story, but a bit too manufactured and saccharine for my taste. But the real question I have, one that I often seem to have, why sound effects? Next to it's a small sitting room, which is the room that my dad used to write in. There was a small radio that would usually play opera or classical music off in the corner of the room. His desk was right where I'm standing right now. And I remember as a kid sitting at that desk looking through his drawers and just spending time with him as he was here writing. 
I am relentlessly grumpy about sound effects when they're used this way. There is no need to insert classical music when Anderson refers to classical music or to bring in the sound of a typewriter just because Anderson recalls his father writing. If Anderson was to now, after this podcast, write a book about exploring grief in the wake of his mother's death, would Anderson include sketches of musical notes and a picture of a typewriter in the text? No. So why choose the audio equivalent in an audio story? Okay, let's move on. But before I do, I hope the questions I'm bringing up are the sort of questions a production team asks as they produce a story. In fact, I raise them here, hoping that if producers aren't asking these questions, they may be inspired to do so with the next project. Okay, so now I'm moving on. A question about recording quality in Bjork, Sonic Symbolism. You're listening to Sonic Symbolism. Sonic Symbolism. This is episode one. Most of us go through phases in our lives that take roughly three years. And it is not a coincidence that this is often how long it takes to make an album, a book, or a film. In the conversations on this podcast, me This is Bjork, the singer and songwriter. No one sings and writes like Bjork. She's instantly identifiable, a singing sprite. Think Edith Piaf meets the Kronos Quartet and Rasan Kirk at an Icelandic discotheque bathed in the glow of northern lights. Yes, that's overwritten, but it's true. <laughs> the words that describe debut are shy, beginner, The Messenger. In her podcast, Sonic Symbolism, Bjork dissects nine of her albums in chronological order, starting with her first album, Debut. I gotta say, I was hungry for a deep dive into her work from her perspective. Silver. And I assumed she'd bring her creative sensibilities to the podcast. You know, a kind of kind of like radio lab at a mushroom farm. And that hunch proved correct near the beginning of the first episode. An identified young person recites words that describe debut, coupled with excerpts from songs on the album. So I strapped my ears in and was ready for the ride. Unfortunately, the ride didn't last long. My giddiness morphed into disappointment, disbelief even, when I heard the interview tape. So, debut, if you could get your mind over to that time when the work was not yet there, when you somehow felt it coming because you described for me this process that you somehow, you smell the work, you feel the touch of it, or the vibration. Is it possible for you now to get over there and see how it did come? I think out of all my albums, it obviously being my first solo one, it was the one that probably captured most time. <laughs> so the mixing of music throughout the podcast is life. stellar. The narration recorded in the studio, it all sounds great, spot on. But the sound quality of the interviews is subpar. If you consider how lush the production is on Bjork's albums, subpar is a generous description. And I'm not picking one small section of tape and making a fuss. The poor recordings continue throughout the whole series. It seems like Brazilian music has inspired you also a lot during this period of time, like in the early 90s. 
Yeah, I, I think somehow there was a soft rebellion in the fact that I didn't align myself with the sort of Western, you know, the USA and England rock sort of patriarchy first world culture. Sorry, these are all very, very big and ugly words, but it simplifies things. I love Bjork's observations about music and art and culture and economy, all of it, really. I just wish I could hear it clearly. This borders on unlistenable. I tried listening to this podcast on the speakers in my car and with headphones on a jet. No go. I'm sure if I listened through the Bluetooth speakers in my kitchen while I'm making soup or something, I wouldn't have been able to hear her in that environment either. So yes, this podcast is good in terms of its content, but I suspect you know what my question is. Why? Based on the sound of the interview tape, why leave the recorder at a distance on a table in a hollow room using the built-in microphones? Why? Sound quality counts. Yes, from time to time, an interview must be conducted in circumstances that are less than ideal, on Zoom or in a noisy room or with a phone. I get that. But the main character in a podcast, especially in a nine-episode series with episodes running 40 to 50 minutes and longer, the main character has to be mic'd properly. Why is it okay to do otherwise? It's a disservice to listeners, and in this case, it's a disservice to Bjork. To have access to this diversity as a woman, to not be pinpointed into one one role. Right. To be able to be, you know, like you have all the Smurfs, but you just have one female Smurfette. But to say, okay, I want to be all the Smurfs. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. my rebellion. My next and last question is this, and it's, well, I have to say I'm feeling a bit uneasy about asking this one, but here goes. How should producers handle a situation where the story is incredible, and I mean incredible, but the storyteller is not dynamic? Let me start here. A year or two ago, I devoured Ian Urbina's book, The Outlaw Ocean. I consumed it. Couldn't wait to get back to it every day. When I told people about the book, I usually started by saying, you are not going to believe what I read last night. The Outlaw Ocean, the book, is a collection of stories centered around Ian's enterprise reporting on crimes committed at sea, a notoriously difficult place to police. What happens in international waters is mind-blowing. Yes, there's illegal fishing, but there's also piracy, environmental crimes, murder, smuggling, even slavery. It's astonishing. Ian's reported on it all, much of it for the New York Times. It's journalism at its finest. And I'll say this too, Ian's writing is crisp. It's vibrant. The stories jump off the page. So when I learned the CBC and the LA Times co-produced what's basically a podcast version of the book, I thought, well, sure, I'll take this ride again. Turns out it was less of a ride. Heads up, the excerpt I'm about to play is incredibly difficult to listen to. The video came to me from uh, a source at Interpol, and all it had was the subject line, brace yourself. I opened it, and, you know, it was hard to make out what was going on at first. It was obviously shot on someone's phone. The camera is super wobbly. It's at sea in the water, it's very blue, and you see several large tuna longliners. These are big steel ships, and very early on into the video, you start hearing 
gunshots, and that's when I immediately stopped everything else I was doing and focused. The guys in the water are clinging to this wooden wreckage of some sort. It looks like a small boat that's been destroyed. The gunfire is coming at them and missing them. You see it sort of slice into the water. How are you? And the guy on the wreckage is now holding up. Jesus Christ. He holds up his hands, um, palms up, and then he's hit. And there's blood all over the water. The shouting you hear more predominantly is coming from the ship itself, uh, where the shots are being fired. And you can hear the captain of the ship uh, over a loudspeaker yelling in Chinese, uh, which once translated, you know, I, f- I found out was shoot, 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 and over here and over there. And... But you also hear all this yelling among those standing on the deck, and those folks seem like they're just having a great time. You know, you hear them say, I got one, I got one. <laughs> They're just taking target practice. It's just, uh, and that's the end of him. That last shot hit him, and now he's a pool of blood. The whole thing ends with the sort of capstone moment where three of the guys on board. Now, whether these guys are merely witnesses to the crime or culprits, who knows? All you know is that they're smiling, they're giving a thumbs up. One guy's still smoking a cigarette while he's filming the others, and the other guys are sort of hugging each other and posing. That's the end of that. The whole scene is just, I don't know, it's one I've never been able to get out of my head. It's just so slow and methodical. And then the laughing, you know, behind, um, it's just, yeah, it's just really dark. This is The Outlaw Ocean, episode one, the murder video. That scene was hard to read in the book. I think it's even harder to listen to. Ian's tone was spot on given what's happening in the tape. Somber and serious. I especially appreciate the production choice to have Ian watch the video and describe what he's seeing so you can hear his reactions in real time. He's watched that video again and again, and it's still a gut punch. Ian is also a very clear speaker. He's focused, direct, unhurried, and he isn't prone to over-description or digressions. It's clean. And maybe that's because of the magic of editing, but I took a close listen, and I didn't really hear many edits. A few, but not that many. I got the sense that that's how he talks. Those are good qualities to look for in a main character. 
What surprised me is this. That tone remains the same throughout. All seven episodes, just over six hours running time. And Ian's the primary speaker. For instance, in the first episode, the murder video, there are other characters, but Ian spoke maybe 80 to 90% of the time. I figured if I just watched the video enough times, I could start finding clues. And eventually, I noticed that there was a ship in the background, and you can make out some of its identifying numbers. And so, with help from sources, I was able to identify that one vessel. And that was probably the biggest initial break in starting to hone in what country they were from and what fleet they were a part of. The vessel that emerged was the Chun E-217. And this was a Taiwanese-owned tuna longline vessel. What that enabled me to do was immediately go for the corporate records of that ship and ideally figure out whether it was part of a fleet. I was able to hone in on the company. Okay, so let me preface what I'm about to say with this. Storytellers are not all supposed to sound the same. Variety and diversity are essential, maybe even mandatory. And people must remain true to themselves, authentic. Listeners will easily detect someone performing for the microphone. I would not want Ian to do that. On top of that, critiquing how someone speaks, I said earlier it makes me feel uneasy. Well, it does. Voice is directly connected to character and personality. How someone talks is key to how they present themselves in the world. To critique a voice risks being personal, so please hear me. My observations here aren't about Ian. With all that said, I suspect Ian's way of talking serves him well in the field, reporting in dicey situations. Speaking calmly, in an even-keeled manner, that might save your life. But for this podcast, I wonder, would he have been more dynamic if he'd read narration? Reading may have prompted him to be slightly more presentational. Or not. Not everyone is good at tracking narration, and maybe the producers tried that and discovered it wasn't working. So it's possible that's the reason he was interviewed instead, and the producers cut out the questions. But what about choosing someone other than Ian to tell the story? Let a CBC reporter host then use the interview tape as quotes. Of course, a narrator who wasn't part of the reporting might hinder the connection a listener can make with someone who's telling a firsthand story. I think that's why non-narrated stories are often the most powerful. But I also don't think a host slash narrator would be a radio crime in this instance. And maybe this is just a matter of taste, and I'm being overly critical. I mean, the Atlantic magazine ranked the Outlaw Ocean as one of the 10 best in 2022. And in the end, I give a thumbs up to the Outlaw Ocean podcast. I've never come across stories like these. But you might find the book a better experience. There's another reason I'm putting these questions out into the world. I don't think there's enough critical dialogue in public about what works and what doesn't in terms of a craft. Now, to be sure, there's more than there used to be with regular columns now in The New Yorker, Vulture, and a few other outlets. But by and large, so much discussion about the craft reads like TV Guide, a list of what's new and interesting. So I hope my questions are taken in the spirit I offer them. I hope they help improve our work. This is the Sound School podcast from PRX and Transom. Thanks to Genevieve Sponsler, Jay Allison, and WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening.
and transom.org.